If you're like most people, you have somebody famous or influential that you've maybe thought about spending some time with, maybe would go see them if they were in public, maybe try to get a few minutes with them, just so you can maybe see them, how they think, how they act, try to glean something from them, or maybe perhaps make an impression on them or have them make an impression on you. Uh, for me, that experience happened when I was about 15 years old, old or so, when me and some of my friends decided that we were going to go ahead and stake out the Boston Celtics parking lot after one of their playoff games. And our goal was simple. Uh, we were going to make a human barricade in front of Larry Bird's car so he'd be forced to stop and talk with us. And the old Boston Garden was a train station, and you could just kind of walk right in there, and the cars would come down. But we saw all the other players come, and we knew that Larry was coming soon. And soon enough, he did come, and we, of course, did make a human barricade, and he did stop his white Lincoln town car and rolled down his window. And what I anticipated were some friendly words and maybe some encouragement and an invite to dinner or something like that. Uh, but what I got was, well, so let's just say something different. The meeting with Larry Bird was a little bit different than I anticipated. And, frankly, he was a little different than I anticipated. I had an image of him that was made up of literally hundreds of hours of watching him play basketball, listening to him on the radio, studying his stats on his basketball cards, dreaming and fantasizing that I could be him. But when I met him, I realized I didn't know him. He certainly didn't know me. And he's a lot different than I expected. I myself had crafted this careful image, this icon of a superstar, but when I saw him, he was quite different. I think there's some similarity with respect to the church and her Lord. I mean, we do know the stats. We sing about them. We've seen the highlights. We've read it. We come every week. We're dedicated. But when Christians are pressed about who Jesus Christ really is and what He has done and who we are, Sometimes we get all kinds of responses. I think of Pastor Rob Clay this past week at the Gospel Coalition asking a Christian at a Christian church what the gospel was. And that person, after some, I mean, Robbie giving it to him essentially, not understanding the gospel, not understanding Christ, and eventually saying, Well, what do you think it is? It's that type of passive Jesus recreation that makes him look a lot different than he is in the Scripture. That type of assuming of who Jesus is and what he has done that causes us to have a deadly idol of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it lead to? Anemic Christian living. Anemic churches. We don't understand Christ. We don't live in light of who he is. Our goal this morning is not just to do information dump. If you're here just for information to win better arguments, you should just leave now and go read a book somewhere. What we're going to do is we're going to aim for transformation. We're going to aim that God, because He is alive, and the Word of God is alive, and He's still in the business of conforming people into the image of Jesus Christ, that He would use His Word in such a way through His Spirit to reveal Jesus Christ to us that we would be impressed with Him and worship Him and love Him and give Him glory. So the big picture is on our affections, if you will, this morning. You say, what are affections? That's some 17th century word that stumbled into your sermon notes. 
No, it's a very important word that you need to understand. Affections has to do with the whole person. Yes, your mind, what you think and what you believe, what you value, your heart, what you are passionate about, not just emotional about, but passionate, what stirs you, makes you laugh, makes you cry, makes you hungry, makes you thirsty. Truly, Christ. And then your life, how you live. So your mind, your heart, your will, your life, indeed, all of who you are. There's a bullseye on that this morning as we look at this letter, this introductory letter to the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. God is disclosing who Christ is to John. So we're going to have an outline this morning that essentially is three penetrating questions to diagnose your affections. Three penetrating questions to help diagnose your affections, your mind, your heart, and your life. And our goal this morning is just really under the the proposition or the, the central aim that Faithful Christian living is fueled by the truth of who Christ is and who we are. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, you better rightly know who Jesus Christ is and who you are. So we're going to aim to ask these questions and hopefully have them answered in the text. The first penetrating question that we're going to ask this morning to diagnose our affections in Revelation chapter 1 is, do you realize who Jesus Christ truly is? Do you realize who Jesus Christ truly is? Before we look at the text and we see with some clarity who Jesus Christ is. We'll be in verses 12 through 16 here, but we can't go before backing up a little bit and seeing we've already talked a little bit about John being the one who has written this letter. John, of course, is the Apostle John, persecuted on the island of Patmos, not Club Med. He's out there for persecution. He is not retiring. He is getting ready to die. And he's out there on the island of Patmos. And he is not resting on the beach making sandcastles, but he is busting his back day and night with hard labor until he dies. That's how they treated their prisoners. And John finds himself on that island on the Lord's Day, as verse 10 says, which would be Sunday, the day the Lord rose from the dead. He is there on Sunday, and it says that he is in the Spirit. And that summons all type of Old Testament prophetic understanding of one who is being controlled by the Spirit, one who is aware of the Spirit's controlling the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You think of Ezekiel being carried about by the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit. And before we begin to unpack the vision of Jesus Christ, for it is a vision, it's not all these things saying this is what He is. It doesn't necessarily have white hair or burnished bronze feet, but it's a vision. It's God giving through John something to grasp at that is relative to us so we can understand these things of what Christ actually appears in the significance of these things to him. But two very important things that we have to understand right before we go, or or things just might go over our heads. Number one, this is a letter that's written to a church. Specifically, seven churches, as we see in chapters 2 and 3. And church is universal as a result. But it's not written to the unbelieving world primarily. It's written to the church. People like you and like me, that gather together throughout the ages to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. So it's applicable to us. So it finds our, its home not only in our Bibles this morning, but also our bulletins, our pulpit, and our own lives. This is God revealing Himself to the churches. So as stuff gets heavy and, dare I say, a bit sharp and jagged and, and thunderous, if you will, don't, don't have the tendency to say, oh, that's for the reprobates. That's for the bad people. No, this is to the church. So this is for us. This is a letter to Omaha Bible Church. And secondly, this is who Jesus Christ is right now. 
This is not the Savior he's going to evolve into. He's not going to become this Jesus. This description, this unpacking that we go through, this is him right now. As he has been resurrected and stands, and as the hymn goes, and yonder glory, that is him right now. Glorious, unrivaled, beautiful, powerful, judging, sovereign king. That's him now. So to the churches, and that's him now. And you know that the letters to the seven churches, I think you guys studied some of these recently. We're going through them in our care group down at South Campus. There's all kinds of things that are happening there from Ephesus being cold-hearted fundamentalist to Smyrna, the suffering church, Pergamum, there's false teaching, Thyatira, some type of Jesus syncretism with the culture and the world where they were going into the deep things of Satan. Sardis is a dead church. Philadelphia is going to suffer. Laodicea is a church that Jesus says is so bad. They are lukewarm. They're so bad it causes Jesus to gag and want to vomit. So we're somewhere in between there. This church, Omaha Bible Church, is somewhere in there, somewhere. So we need a vision of Jesus Christ too, lest we forget who He is. Unless we find ourselves walking cowardly away from Him. So let's look at verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. So no doubt John is somewhat overtaken. He's in the Spirit, which wouldn't be an everyday occurrence here. But now he has a voice thunderously speaking to him. So he turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. First thing to know is the voice is actually talking to him. John's not eavesdropping on some type of prophetic discussion somewhere. This voice is talking to him. Secondly, notice he's turning to see the voice. How do you see a voice? The translators didn't get this wrong. This is exactly what it says. He turns to see the voice. somewhat of a mystery, but we can conclude that there's some type of magnificent power and glory that's radiating from the voice itself. He hears the voice fine, but he's turning to see the voice, to see the source of this thunderous voice. And then we see when he turns to see the voice, he doesn't see someone but something. Look what it says in verse 12. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He's talking about these seven golden lampstands. Well, what are the lampstands? Well, you might say, oh, this revelation is a tough book to understand. How do, we, how do we know all this symbology and pictures? A great rule of thumb in studying a book, particularly prophetic literature, just keep reading. More than likely, the Bible will answer itself. And we see that in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven styles which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven styles of the angels, or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So it's a picture. It's a picture of the churches. You say, well, what's the significance of lampstands and churches and well, in the Jewish literature, in the Old Testament, in the temple, we know that the lampstands were strategically placed in the temple. Specifically, Exodus chapter 25 shows us that the lampstands are placed in and around the veil of the temple, even between the inside and the outside to promote the glory of God. Now, we don't have to think too hard to understand the reason for this, that obviously as Israel, in the temple in specific, was there to radiate and promote and declare the glory of God to the surrounding nations, the church here is to be a lampstand that radiates and promotes the glory of God to the nations around us. So the church, again, is the lampstand, or, or the churches are the lampstands. We are to promote the light and glory of Christ through the nations. But then he goes on here in verse 13, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. And this is a very intentional term used by John. 
And the Son of Man brings to mind all sorts of visions of Daniel and the anticipated glorious work of Christ. If you would, keep your finger in Revelation and flip on back to Old Testament Daniel. And if you're new to the Bible, don't worry about it. I'm going to read some and you can jot them down or however you would like. But Daniel is looking forward to the Messiah. Revelation, John is looking at the Messiah. He has come. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. We're seeing some of the continuity here with this Son of Man discussion. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man, verse 13, was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this this Son of Man was given given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations of men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You might remember that Jesus himself was fond of this term, Son of Man. He even quoted Daniel chapter 7 in reference to himself in Mark chapter 13, verse 26. He says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So what's the significance here? You can flip on back to Revelation. What's the significance of Son of Man? I think it is with, to emphasize with some attention-grabbing clarity the fact that Jesus Christ is the authoritative judge. He's the judge. He's the Lord. He's the Son of Man that Daniel looked forward to, that John was looking at. Later on in Revelation, we see this same phrase used in Revelation 14, 14. Listen, I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on a cloud was one like a Son of Man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is the gospel reaper. People are afraid of the grim reaper? Be afraid of the gospel reaper because he's coming with a sickle. You might say that he came sowing the gospel seeds his first coming. With his second coming, he's not sowing any seeds. He has a sickle and he's reaping the tares. He's clearing his threshing floor and he is coming. That is who we're talking about. And we learn in Revelation chapter 5 that there's this scroll in the hand of the Father. And inside that scroll, you might say, the title deed of the earth or all the forthcoming judgments that are unfolded like a, a large napkin or a large scroll through the rest of Revelation where the king is going to come and he's going to execute judgment and he's going to systematically purge the planet of wickedness culminating in a great end where he will come and he will judge all of those who were rebellious to him and will not trust in him. And He will judge them all and turn them and throw them into hell. He will set up His kingdom and He will reign an everlasting kingdom. And glorious Christ will come and He'll do all those things. So we understand here when we're talking about the Son of Man, this just isn't an, a name, a title thrown on Jesus. Like when I became a Christian and thought that Christ was His last name. That's not the case here. This isn't just Son of Man, something we use... In the Bible. This has eternal significance. He's the one who can take the scroll, unwrap it, come back, judge, set up his kingdom for a thousand years, usher in the eternal state, the new heavens and earth, Jerusalem, the glorious reversal of what the first Adam has done. This is a big deal. There's a lot of biblical baggage connected to this cart, if you will. So he is the sovereign judge. He's the king. He is the Son of Man. Well, We look at verse 13. And where is this judging Son of Man? Look at that. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw the one like the Son of Man. Where is He? In the middle of the lampstands. In the middle of the churches. 
The judge is there. Furthermore, if you drop down to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands. Now, that is to say that this sovereign Son of Man is moving among the churches. And not just Ephesus and Philadelphia and all of the churches at that time, but He moves among all of the lampstands. The sovereign Son of Man is here, even now. The sovereign judge. The one Daniel fell on his face when he anticipated, who John saw in a vision, is now even here. He says he moves among the seven lampstands. That's not just figurative language. He is in the church, the sovereign king. Well, how does that speak to a church that maybe is thinking about doctrinal compromise or that is complacent or that is trying to get creative and reimagine Jesus or is trying to go and move away from what the Bible says to someone biblical tolerance that's caving into the pressures around them or to someone that is going to the stake to die for Jesus Christ and is tempted to fall away? Be of good cheer. The Son of Man is here. He sees. He's authoritative. And He's judging This is a good lesson for us to remember that instead of trying to make Jesus more, or trying to make unbelievers more comfortable with Jesus, we should probably take Jesus, a play out of Jesus' playbook, and make the church a little more uncomfortable with Jesus. We're all consumed. We're trying to package and make Jesus so acceptable to the world, we shave off all his edges and make him fit into nice little neat packages so that anybody can't help but receive him. And here Jesus is saying, I'm really concerned about my church. And I want them to frankly be knocked off balance a little bit. With my glorious power. My sovereign authority. If we want to be faithful Christians, we need to be fueled by the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He's eternally righteous. He's the sovereign monarch. And He's here. He's here. Furthermore, the text goes on to give more of a description. Look at verse 13 again. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And there's some debate among commentators. Is is this referring to uh, the the robe that is worn by the high priest, or is this some type of attire of a dignified judge? And, And honestly, either one is not going to, neither one is going to do any harm to Jesus Christ. And his authority and person, and what in the description that's here. So, if he's the high priest, that makes sense. He's the high priest of our salvation, but it doesn't seem to go with the flow of the of the text here. But you might say that he, he's the dignitary, the one similar to the one in Ezekiel chapter nine, who was dispatched by God to go around marking out those who were faithful to God, those who did not sigh and groan under the abominations. And this is actually the same Greek word here in the, in the New Testament that you see in the Greek translation of the Old, talking about that long robe that reach, reaches to the feet. And combine it here with the sash, we have an authoritative, judging, sovereign, unique dignitary. He's called the Son of Man. And who is he speaking to? The churches. Very applicable for us. Very applicable. Look at verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And if you still have your finger in Daniel chapter 7, you flip on back there. And listen to chapter 7, verse 9. And I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. Sound familiar? Absolutely. 
A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. And you might be wondering, what's the significance of all this? It's, it really seems to be the, to isolate and emphasize the equality and solidarity between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. He is man, absolutely, but He is fully God as well. He is not less than God. He is the eternal God. He has the, the, the attributes of God. And He's the head of the church. So feel free to import your understanding of Jehovah God here. He's the unchanging, absolute, pure, ancient of days. And here is His Son, the Savior, who is very much God. He's the one who walks among the seven churches. He, he walks among here, amongst here. What does that say to all of us who want to make Jesus our little buddy? Our little life coach? Our pal? Our peer? You know, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. He's my little pal. Guys, He's the sovereign King of heaven. He will not be tamed. He will not be domesticated. He will not fit in a nice, neat box. He owns everything. He's the King. This is Jesus. This is a vision we need today when books are flying off the shelves like reimagining Jesus. Don't imagine you don't have to imagine. You don't have to pretend to imagine. You just need to read and worship because He's glorious. And he stands alone, sufficient to garner all of our praise. We just need to see Him and get all this junk out of the way and just focus on Him and His glory. Because He's sufficient. What well, gets even better, if that's possible, look at verse 14. And His eyes were like, what? A flame of fire. This is just like Daniel chapter 7 as well. The fire, river of fire flowing and coming out before him. And chapter 10 verse 6 says, his eyes were like flaming torches. I preached this sermon a couple of weeks ago at South Campus. And I think it was a Wednesday morning. I was getting up to go to a meeting. And, and Elena is crying. And a little girl who's seven now, she's crying. And I go in and I say, what's the matter? And she begins telling me a story about how mommy was mad at her because she didn't make the bed and she had eyes that were bright like fire. <laughs> and she was just, you know, and I was just like, wow, she was listening. But she just imputed it to the wrong person. <laughs> but maybe mommy's Christ-like. I don't know. That's it, right? So. But the eyes of fire. And in that culture, they didn't have flashlights, much less electrical on the wall where you could flip it on and come. You're in a dark room. What do you carry? You carry a torch. You carry fire. If you're going to light something up, you need a torch. And Daniel said his eyes were like flaming torches. So this is to say that the, the ever-piercing eyes of the Savior are authoritative. They're intelligent. They're darkness extinguishing. He, in his eyes, can see through everything, see everywhere. He can see into your heart. He can see into my heart. He knows what we're thinking, what we're doing. He knows our chief love. He knows our chief effect. He knows everything about us. We cannot retreat anywhere. He's more inward than even our heart, as one theologian says. We can go hide all we want. We can't get away from him. His eyes are flaming fire, and he sees everything. That's what the church needs to know when we're doing our prayer meetings, when we're planning for ministry, when we're getting bitter at one another, and we want, when we start talking about one another, and we're worried about clicks over here, we're worried about these things over here. Listen, He sees everything. Not only is He here, but He sees. You need to live, I need to live like 
He sees. He's not senile. Flaming fire sees everything. Christ. That's who we're talking about. And he's disclosing it to the church. He wants us to understand who he is, that we would wrestle and grapple with it, that we'd be knocked off balance a little bit if that's necessary. So we'd be radically and emphatically shaken by this jaw-dropping vision. He is the Christ. If you have this tolerant church in Thyatira, his eyes are torches of fire to shake them out of their evangelical slumber of complacency. We need to be poked and prodded as well. Remember, again, not for the unbelieving world primarily, but for church members like you and like me. You need to know he's the sovereign judge. His eyes are like flames of fire. That is my prayer this week and months leading up is just that we would believe that this is true. This is the Jesus we have. We put away our scribble pads where we're trying to make a Jesus that looks like us. You know the the caricatures in the newspaper, you know, where they make him of President Obama and he's got big ears, big chin, squeening eyes. And that's supposed to be funny because you're over-emphasizing certain attributes. We do the same thing in the church. Instead of big ears, it's big love, big mercy, big kindness, little itty-bitty righteousness and judgment. Put away your scratch pad. Open the Bible and just see Him for who He is. Look in the mirror of the Word and see Him as the glorious one. And then the text goes on, verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in the furnace. And he's talking about his feet here. Again, not literal feet, just giving us the vision of what the picture is so we'd understand what is trying to be communicated. But in the Scriptures, we have the emphasis on feet is is that for movement. In this case, we have Christ moving where? Amongst the churches. And furthermore, we see that his feet are like burnished bronze, even glowing as something that had come out of the furnace. So that is to say they're pure feet. They're glorious feet, if you will. It's been in the, it, the bronze has been smelted by the fire and is rightly reflecting the glory of Christ. So he's moving as the sovereign, uncompromising, ever-inspecting judge, and all the while he's doing so with a loud exclamation point of his glory, purity, and power. Oh, we need to see this. Forget seeker-sensitive. We need savior-sensitive. He is glorious. And he walks among the churches in all of his glorious purity. We'll continue on, verse 15. It says, His voice was like the sound of many waters. We already observed that John is where? He's on the beach. Island of Patmos. And he no doubt had heard the dominance of the sea waves crashing upon him on the water and how it drowns out anything but the waves themselves on the Aegean Sea. If any of you have sat on the ocean, you've no doubt have had to shout to the person next to you as the waves are crashing down on the shoreline. But the ocean really is just an illustration of the attention-grabbing voice of the Son of God. He is dominant. Similar to Ezekiel 43, His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with His glory, looking forward to when the glory of God returns. And many today do not hear Him. That's not because He does not speak. and It's not because He's not authoritative and loud. It's because hearts are hardened towards Him. Because his voice is powerful, is authoritative. It's to cause us to even worship him, even here. And look at verse 16. It says, In his right hand he held seven stars. Just unpacking what this vision is that Christ reflects. Verse 16, we see some, some of the close connection between the seven stars and the seven lampstands. 
All that to say that he is powerful. He holds the churches and their leaders in his hand. He has authority. He has control. He is in charge. You might be tempted to think when you read some of the letters like Laodicea and Sardis, man, he is not in control. No, he is in control. And he is cleaning out his churches like he's cleaning out the temple. He's in control. As he calls them to repent of their dead works and repent of their hard hearts. And then you look at verse 16 and you say, out of his mouth came what? A sharp, two-edged sword. This vision is just just amazing. It's just staggering. It's mind-blowing. You you look at this picture and you see the powerful judging word of Christ on full display. Reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 1 talking about when the king comes and he, chapter 11 rather, crushes and judges with the rod of his mouth. And there's really nothing sharper than a two-edged sword. And the Greek word that, that John actually uses here was a known Roman sword that was actually a short sword that was shaped like a tongue. So very visual here. And even more, we have a double-edged sword to emphasize that it's able to accomplish its intended work. The word does not return void. The word is not impotent. It is not weak. It is powerful. It is authoritative because it is Christ's word. He's the warrior. His word is sharp and cutting and authoritative. And we know when we read the rest of the book that when the Master comes back again, He's not going to fight with weapons. Though all the bows and arrows and weapons may be drawn, the Master just stands and He does what? He speaks. And He wins. And the sovereign Word is the Word of Christ, the Word of God we know also. Whether it's written or incarnate, Christ or the Scriptures, we know that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Hebrews 4 tells us that about the Scripture. And here we see the Word of Christ as He speaks truth of God and speaks truth of His judgment. It's powerful and sharp. It's the Word of God. We need to preach and live like that. We need to do our devotions like we believe that the Word of Christ works. Like it is authoritative. Like it is powerful. Again, we're not gathering just information. We're looking for transformation. If we really want to be faithful Christians, what do we must do? We must believe who Jesus Christ is. Truly. And then in verse 16, His face was like the sun shining in its strength. We top off this most amazing vision. We have blinding glory. I mean, you, you could just see John squinting his eyes before the vision. He, he cannot endure the, the reddening, blasting Vision of Christ, the glorious Son. John, of course, isn't new to seeing Christ glorified. In Matthew chapter 17, he was one of the privileged few that went up on the mountain. And Christ's clothes turned bright white, and he was transfigured before them, and they worshipped, and they couldn't believe the prefigured glory of Christ. And now, in a similar sense, but now after the cross, seeing face-to-face this vision, he's before the glorious Christ again. But there's something about this glory, isn't there? It's just too bright. It's too much to behold. He can't look upon the vision of Christ without seemingly melting. And we know something about this when we drive and we head east in the morning or head west in the afternoon on I-80 perhaps. And the sun is just coming up and you're quickly scrambling for sunglasses or visor or something to put over your face because you can't see. You're afraid you're going to crash. We know it's hot. We know it's bright and we're looking away. But how much more of this? 
The one who gives it the sun its strength. The one who gives the sun its brightness. The one who gives the sun its heat. The one who will stand even in the middle of the sun. Christ, the source of all of the blinding brightness. It's Christ. And here, not heat and not light, but the very purpose, the glorious, unapproachable light of Christ. His glory is radiating from Him. And what does John do? He's squinting. He's, he's doing this number. He, he cannot see. Shining in full strength. You know what? I think as a church, we need to squint a little bit. We, we need to be squinting. We, we need to behold something of the glory of Christ. Do, do you squint? Do, do you find yourself just saying, oh, it's, it's too much. Christ is too glorious. What? Righteous? Holy, just, powerful, but merciful, loving, kind, forgiving, gracious, all melded together in one person, sin-bearing substitute, wrath-satisfying, blood-atoning, victorious, death-conquering. Are you kidding me? I need to square. I can't even look at this. The apostles, when he walked on water, wanted to die. They were scared. We see something of the glory of Christ. We just waltz around indifferently, comfortably, ignorantly with some type of familiarity with Jesus that makes Him our little buddy. He is meaning to make you squint and to behold Him in the Word to see His glory and His power. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 2 Corinthians 4 says that God, the One who causes light to shine in the darkness, has caused His light to shine into our hearts, the formerly dead, blinded hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. He's made us to be able to see Him. And when you see Him, He's given the Spirit so you could behold Him and enjoy Him. And we walk around like we haven't seen Him. We're distracted by all this stuff. We need to squint. You need to pray for the gift of squinting. That you would, you would see Him in His Word as He's glorious and great and worthy of all of your worship. And some of you are yawning in your hearts right now. God doesn't want yawners. He wants squinters. He wants people to look at His Son and echo back to Him. He said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He wants us to say, this is our beloved Savior with whom we're well pleased. Oh, that He would make us a church people who squint at the glory of God. Want to see more, but can't because it will blast us with His power and greatness and be overcome. First question, do you realize who He is? Do you realize who Jesus Christ is? He's the eternal God who is immortal and unchanging. He moves about His church, promoting His purity and His glory. He judges apostates and enemies. His words cut and judge. He's the dignitary who demands worship. His eyes are torches of fire that intelligently and ceaselessly inspect hearts and minds and lives. His voice thunders like the roar of the ocean. His glory is powerfully arresting, so powerfully arresting that we can't even behold it without covering our eyes. Do you realize who He is? Let Him diagnose your heart and your affections here. Now second, do you realize who you are? Verse 17, John writes, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet 
like a dead man. You have the uncorking of this fully fermented vision of the glorified Christ. And John the Apostle is overcome and he falls down. Remember, John's the one who leaned on the Savior's chest and heard his heartbeat. It was close to him. He was the beloved Apostle. That means nothing now. He's falling like a dead man. Well, why? Look at the text. When I saw him, he saw Christ. So he falls down. Where does he fall? He falls prostrate. The proper place for humanity before God is on our face. What about the two women at the tomb? Matthew 26. No, 28. Verses 1 through 8, you see him resurrected. And here comes the two women, and they come and behold Jesus, and they fall at his feet, and they grabbed around his, his ankles. And you see them with great fear and great joy. This is the picture here. Here's the great fear part. Because they've seen Him. He's seen Him. And they're prostrate. He's prostrate. And He falls like a dead man. He's not dead, but He might as well be dead. He's lifeless because He's been overcome by someone who's far more glorious and powerful than He could ever imagine. Well, why? Why does He fall? It's because He sees Him. And I think there are two things that come exploding out here. On the one hand, He's cognizant of His sin. He's not perfectly righteous. He's a sinner. Although positionally declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, yes, but he's aware of sin in his life because he has not been fully conformed to the image of Christ, which will happen when he dies. But here he lays on his face because he knows before Christ, the perfectly righteous one radiating the glory of God, that his position is rightly on his face. He understands his sin He understands his rebellion. He understands also the glory of Christ. So on the one hand, it's his sin that drives him down. On the other hand, it's Christ's glory. And those two together work together to cause a holy collision of worship in John's life. And this seems like the most biblical place to be on your face before the Savior. Notice John is not concerned about people talking behind his back. He's not grumbling and complaining. He's not, he's not bitter against people. He's not unforgiving. I mean, that's not what he's consumed. He's not talking about his hurt feelings or cliques or any of these other things. When he sees the glory of Christ, he is on his face. When I don't see the glory of Christ, I'm consumed with all kinds of stuff. There is so much application in that reaction by John for us to model and make normative in our life, make it a regular practice. We don't have time to unpack everything. But just make that connection. When I am living in sin and self-consumed, I've totally eclipsed the glory of Christ. I don't see Him. This is what happens over and over again in the Scriptures when people see God and they're cognizant of their sin. Ezekiel, such was the appearance, chapter 1, verse 20, of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face. Daniel says it three times. He fell in a deep sleep on his face with his face to his ground when he's looking forward. Isaiah, how about Isaiah chapter 6? He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Why, he has seen God. Look what it says. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he's on his face. John chapter 12 tells us these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Christ 
in Christ's glory. He saw His glory in the vision. And Isaiah has the same reaction on his face because he knows of his sin and he knows of the glory of God. Matthew 28, you see the same thing. The God shook for fear of him and he became like dead man for the resurrected Lord. Mark 16, verse 8. The disciples were afraid. This is why I said that faithful Christian living is fueled by the truth of who Christ is and who we are. Do you realize who you are? Do you realize who Christ is? Third, do you realize what Christ has done? Do you realize who He is? Do you realize who you are? Do you realize what He has done? This is the message for the churches. This is the message for our church. We see Him not only indisputably powerful as the judge who dwells in unapproachable light, but here we see something of the compassion and kindness and love of Jesus Christ. I'll be honest with you, studying through this passage, working through it, I'll say, this is a little judgment heavy for the church. I'm a little uncomfortable. I'm a little, you know, maybe I need to rethink how you phrase this and put all kinds of qualifiers on it, you know, and, oh, but, you know, we're always forgiven in the perseverance of the saints and we will endure and we will be there. But you know what? The text doesn't do that. It just leaves you uncomfortable to see really what you're clinging to, yourself or him. And now we have this compassion that comes along the other side. Look at verse 17. John, of course, is on his face. And he placed his right hand on me. And we see in the Scriptures over and over again, whether it's Daniel 10 or other places where God symbolically or an angel putting their hands on another that is in great fear to reassure or to comfort But you could just imagine how the soundtrack would be going if this was a movie. I mean, getting louder. I'm envisioning some techno music, maybe Casey playing the drums. You know, it's just getting louder and louder. Maybe some bass and all kinds of violins just going crazy psychedelically. And then all of a sudden, stop. It's something very smooth and mellow playing in the background. Maybe some jazz. He just comes and touches him. Comforts him. And here's John, motionless, laying limp on the floor, and he's comforted by Christ. You have the nail-pierced hand of Jesus coming and reaching down to the floor to touch the beleaguered and hurting disciple. I think it's in here that we see something of the attributes of Christ come converging into a head. In chapter 5, verse 5, we see that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But He's also what? The Lamb who was standing as if been slayed, literally slaughtered. So on the one hand, you have him powerful, intimidating, untamable, ferocious as a lion, but at the same time, loving, compassionate, merciful, life-giving, humble as a lamb. And this is the one who's drawn near to his people. He's drawn near to rebels. And again, the difficulty is maintaining the balance and seeing it here. Is He the Lion? Is He the Lamb? The answer is yes, He's Jesus. And you're to worship Him in all of His beautiful variances and find Him glorious. You say, I can't, I can't get my mind around it. How can He be Lion and Lamb, righteous and 
loving at the same time. The, the answer is he's different than us. That's the point. He's glorious. You're meant to worship him. I'm meant to find him glorious and love him. They display together compassion and ferocity and marvel and all of it coming together in the face of Christ. But notice what John does. He says, don't be afraid. And that's not saying, you know, of some type of merciless call to get over yourself. This is saying, don't be afraid because of the victory, the glorious declaration of victory. And what John gets is a bunch of theology, specifically the gospel, gospel-centered theology. So he's hurting, he's down, and he says, I want you to write this to the churches, and he just dumps Christocentric gospel theology on them, who Christ is. Look at verse 17 again. Do not be afraid. He says, I, I am the first and the last. Jesus starts off with declaring that he is the great I am. In the Greek New Testament, it would be emphatic, the I, I am. And if you're thinking Old Testament thinking, you say, I am, that, that means something in the Bible. Absolutely. When Moses saw God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, he said, who do I say sent me? What did God say? You tell him, I am sent you, the eternally existent, always there, powerful one sent you. He sent you. And we see throughout the Old Testament, God continues to dip back in the great I am statements to reassure his people of his power. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat as God in flesh. Throughout the New Testament, making that emphatic statement, you read the book of John, he says it over and over again. I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus is the great I am. And furthermore, he's also, look at the text, verse 18, the first, or 17, the first and the last. Again, stressing his divinity and his eternality, the beginning and the end, or the alpha, the omega. He is the first and the last. What does that do for somebody that's going to go die for their faith? Oh, I'm dying for the one that's the first and the last. What about the one that wants to go after some new things? And wander away from orthodoxy. Wait a minute, I'm wandering to something new. He's the first and the last. Where am I going? I'm chasing my own tail. He's the first and He's the last. He's the eternal divine one, the glorious one. There's nowhere else to go but Christ. In Isaiah 41, I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am He. I am the first and the last. There is no God beside me. Isaiah 44, 6. And then we say the statement in Revelation 21, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It's Christ, the first and the last. You need to remember that He is the first and the last. No other organization on this planet serves a transcendent, eternal CEO. He is the first and the last. All these organizations will be swallowed up in time. But the church of the living God has eternal consequences, eternal ramifications. He is the first and the last, and He will be getting glory throughout all eternity as the first and the last. And verse 18 goes on to say He's the living one. Now, the Scriptures always show God to be the living one as contrasted to what? The dead, false idols. But He's the living God. He's the great I Am. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the source of life, as John 5 says. He has life in Himself. You and I are intended to marvel at the fact that everything that has ever been, everything that is currently now, and everything that forevermore will be exists and has life because the sovereign Lord Christ has given it life. 
and he has stamped his trademark of Soli Deo Gloria on it, the glory of God alone. It's all by him, through him, and for him. Everything that exists, it's all for Jesus Christ. He used to get glory from you. He used to get glory from plants and mountaintops and everything that exists. It's all for Him. He's the cosmic King. He is the living one. And whether you're facing trials or persecution or what discipline or whatever it is, Christ is the living one. Life is sourced in Him. That's why the great martyrs could walk up to the stake and say, no need to tie me. I'll just stand here and burn for the living one. There's no need to tie me. And when the flames went out, they stabbed him and killed him. Because he just stood there trusting the living one. Life is sourced in him. And you combine this with absolute sovereignty and goodness, and what do you have but a childlike dependence that looks a lot like John in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, laying his head on the Savior's chest with comfort, humble, satisfied delight in Christ. He is the living one. You need to remember He's the living one. We need to do ministry like He's the living one. But that's not all. Verse 18 says, And I was dead. The living one is to be contrasted to the one who died. Literally, I became dead. This is, of course, referring to the death of Jesus Christ. We're not to miss the tremendous irony here between the two phrases, the life giver became dead. Now, up to this point where we're piling on beautiful statements about Christ and we're loving it and we're saying, yeah, that's my Savior. He's glorious. He's powerful. And we get behind Him and we say, yes, yes. And then we get to this one, but I became dead. And we go, ah. It's like a punch in the face, in the gut. Because why? Because I killed Him. I, you, we, ordered the cross from a human perspective. Our rebellion against the glory and rule of God demanded that if God is going to be forgiven, He must also be substitutionary. He must give His life. He must be redemptive. See, before we can rejoice and celebrate in the benefits of the cross, we must begin to understand its scandal. In other words, before you and I begin to taste the delicious fruit of the blessing and joy in Christ, you had better take a long swig of the bitter truth that it was your sin that ordered the cross. In other words, before you can feel yourself as a saint, you better see yourself as a murderer. We are, like Martin Luther said, walking around with the nails in our pockets. I have calluses on my hand that remind me that I would have swung that hammer and nailed him to death. I would have a hoarse voice yelling, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Put this one to death. But he died. And that inscription on the cross said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But it might rightly have said, this is Eric Raymond's payment. This is what it costs to ransom and pardon such a filthy sinner as him. How evil is sin that God must bleed to cure it, said Stephen Charnock. How bad is my sin, how bad is your sin, that it took the Prince of Heaven to die for it? There's no way else to pardon but by this. You've got to see the life giver breathe his last and give up his own life as you begin to see something of the weight of your sin. And he wants the church to remember this. This isn't an evangelistic sermon. This is to the church. The gospel needs to be remembered in the church before it's forgotten, like in Ephesus, in Laodicea, 
in Sardis. I mean, the curse is so ferocious, so devastating, so pervasive, so demanding that it claimed the heaven's prince. Think about that. The living one died. There's no comforting hand of the Savior without a pierced hand to comfort. So let the bitter truth swirl around on your spiritual taste buds to calibrate your thinking, calibrate your affections, diagnose your heart. He died, and we killed him. But the text doesn't stop there. Verse 18, And behold, I am, another one, I am alive forevermore. He is alive forevermore. He was dead. He became dead. But He is now alive forevermore and will never die. And thus our hope and inheritance is tied to the righteous robe of Christ, which will never die. Death can't hold Christ. Scripture says in Psalm 16, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Death was powerfully defeated by the living God. I mean, this isn't just some type of a tip of the hat to the resurrection. This is saying that everything in Christ was powerfully accomplished. He did it all. He did exactly what was promised to Adam and Eve. That from the the seed of the woman, what would come to crush the head of the serpent? And indeed, Christ did. He defeated Satan, disarmed Satan, and displayed him publicly, as Colossians 2.15 says. He destroyed death and sin with it. He did it all. Satan's head, if you will, has the treadmark of Christ's boot on it. He defeated him. You need to see that. He's alive. It's exactly what's been promised. He's powerful. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. It's the whole point is victory, assurance, security, power, worthwhileness in Christ. And finally, it says in verse 18, I have the keys of death and Hades. That is to say, I have authority. His keys lock or unlock the dungeon gates of death. He is the warden, if you will. He has the charge over the prison that is hell. He has the authority over death. He has authority over what happens after you die. There's no one. Jesus may be compared to many rivals in this world with all the other different gods in our pluralistic society, but let it be known. There's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And on that day, all of them will bow before Him and give Him due homage and glory because He will stand alone, distinguished as the King of death and Hades, and He will have on His janitorial belt, if you will, the keys, which no one will wrestle from Him. And He's victorious. So your eternal salvation, if you are in Christ, is as secure as Christ's person. He's victorious. Faithful Christian living is fueled by the reality of who Christ is and who we are. If we as a church, no matter how old or how young we are, begin to grasp the glory of Jesus Christ, we might change. We might be different. Your spouse might look at you and say, what has happened to you? And you might say, I think I've been to heaven. Or I think Christ has come down. As we squint at His glory and see His power. 
The whole text is intended to magnify the glory of Christ and motivate us to worship the Savior. If we were going to be faithful, we must understand who He is and what He's done and who we are. Again, we're intended to be knocked off balance a little bit. We're intended to be shaken up and look at Him and say, Oh, oh, I've missed so much of Christ. I need to get back to the cross. I need to get back to His life. I need to get back to the Word. And just let God speak to me through the Word and refresh my heart. So the three penetrating questions aren't to be answered probably today, maybe somewhat today. But I would go home and read Revelation 1 and pray through it and keep thinking about it and let God deal with your heart. Do you realize who Christ is? See the Savior's self-disclosure. Do you realize who you are? See John's self-discovery. Do you realize what Jesus Christ has done? See the Savior's self-declaration. May God be pleased to take His holy word, powerfully apply it by His Holy Spirit, to take His people to see His Son, that He might be glorified in and through His church, even today. And that in that we might find everlasting joy in Christ, who is glorious. Let's pray. So, Father, we come today to an end of another Sunday of studying Your Word and reading Scripture and singing. And one wonders if we are ever impacted. Certainly we read of John and so many other saints, whether Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah, who saw something of Your glory and were never the same. Even Jacob, as he wrestled with an angel of God, walked away limping as he clung to the promise and as the promiser clung to him. We come and we meet and we have so much information, so much revelation, so much truth, but so many distractions. So I pray, gracious Heavenly Father, who is altogether powerful and lovely, that you would attend your word with your spirit even now, breed conviction deep in our hearts, Cause us to see Christ as glorious, lovely, and worthy of worship. Let us enjoy the fruit of this life and salvation to be impressed with Jesus Christ today as we anticipate tomorrow when He comes. We pray that You would do this for Your own namesake and glory and our everlasting joy. Amen.